In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Today's readings create an eschatological framework in which the words from our Lord are set in a context of the utmost urgency. Time is of the essence, and it is what we do with the time we have that is going to provide the vital information that our Lord will need when on that dread day he comes to judge us for what we have done. Such a context continually inspires a great sense of alertness, of awakeness, I pray, and maybe even a little more, a sense of fear, of the deepest anxiety. Who shall stand, Lord, before you? It's always, to me then, welcome to find a word of hope, especially among those who took just and righteous judgment seriously. No one took it more seriously than Martin Luther. His life's work was struggling to find a gracious God. He was, as Kierkegaard said, the great patient of Europe, and his neuroses have been a blessing to many of us. He found his gracious God, and for that I give thanks to the grace of God. And that little island of grace appears, and here we take up where we ended last week, in the year 1518, Thesis 28 of the Heidelberg Disputation. The love of God does not discover, but first creates what is pleasing to it. Again, the love of God does not discover, it doesn't wait to find that which gives that love joy, it first creates what is pleasing to it. And that creative work of God is ongoing. That's about as gracious as you can get. All else is shorn away, put to death, writes Gerhard Ferde. What remains is simply the creative love of God. It is love, the love of God which creates out of nothing calls into being that which is from that which is not. The creative love of God. But of course, here's the rub. We remind ourselves that God prefers to create out of nothing. We give him what is his. But to work with what is ours, God often likes to work toward a blank canvas to purify, to bleach, blanch away so much of our life, of our journey with him, which is based on misapprehension, misunderstanding, or just bad old habits. A creative creator God, in other words, uses everything, even our bad habits, to summon up this universe from the formless chaos that we call nothing. Of course, we cannot get back up there with God to see in the big picture. 
how our struggles, our constant daily repentance is working out. We go step by step and we trust that we are on the path. The Holy Spirit is the mediator of everything from our ability to read scripture and be touched by it to our ability to discern God's will from one moment to the next. Where is the love, however, we so often ask when once again we find that we've lost our way, we find that our own undealt with sin, another ongoing aspect of life, this side of paradise, has cut us off from the voice of that same Holy Spirit. The love is then often found in retrospect when we see how God's grace has been working even through our difficulties. The parable we have just heard deals with this problem. Now, this parable is the central part of chapter 25. We don't put too much stock on the structural integrity of the chapter divisions of the Bible. They were created by an Archbishop of Canterbury, after all. and We all know what trouble that can get us into. But there is a lovely usable structure among other possible structures in chapter 25 of Matthew's gospel. There's these three parables. We're dealing with the center one. We'll allude to the final one, even though that's properly going to be Mike's subject next Sunday. I'll ask Mike's forgiveness later, and he'll offer uh, restoration to all of you when he interprets it graciously. (laughs) But I need that final parable to make sense of this one, so... You can open to that if you wish. I don't have the page number, but I will be alluding to the whole of the chapter. Three stewards we have today. Now, these are called servants, but because they're being entrusted with a lot of responsibility, I call them the three stewards, and this is supposed to be a sermon on stewardship anyway. You can determine that later. Three stewards have been put in charge of their master's wealth. They deal with their responsibilities in different ways. To invest the money, these are large sums, by the way, tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on how you calculate a day's wage, by the minimum wage, perhaps, or by what a laborer gets to work for streets and sand in downtown Chicago, about $85,000, I think, a year, which isn't too bad. So tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they benefit from the dividends that are being paid. Their money has already doubled. One of the stewards, however, balks. He buries the money in the ground, which is the equivalent of government bonds, I guess, or Greek or Italian debt. (laughs) The master is pleased with the creativity demonstrated by the first two. Well done, good and faithful servant, he says to one of them. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But for the third, for all his caution, there is nothing but the most intense recrimination. You ought to have invested my money, and I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, he says to the others, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, Even what he has will be taken away. There is a logic here, and a very important one. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. 
right. What is the problem here? Why has the third steward choked? And we're entitled to ask this question because I think we identify with the third steward as our default mode. Third steward was afraid. That's all. Fear of God, the beginning of wisdom. Afraid of his master. Paralyzed with fear because it seemed to him that his master was one who was not particularly interested in the well-being of his stewards. He has the fear of God. He doesn't have the wisdom to which that is supposed to lead. A God who did not seem to much respect private property in this steward's view, who treats it as his own, surprise, surprise, with apparent disregard. Now, this could be the third steward's autobiography or history of his financial dealings. And his financial dealings are spiritual dealings as well. His fear, his mistrust of the master engenders no sympathy from the master. Why? Because this is about trust. It's about the trust the master puts in his stewards, us, the incredible privilege he gives to them to invest the things he has given them us as we see fit and he what are these things we will get to that shortly what are these goods that we invest because this is not just about money stewardship sermon or not another question why did the two successful stewards start with different sums of money this is one of them that haunts me a very competitive person sadly in recovery but I'll never quite get out of that. <laughs> Why does one steward get two? Why does steward get five to start off? This bothers me. They both seem to have achieved the same result. <clears throat> They've doubled their money. So was one better than the other at this game? Was there some mystery of divine election going other on? Or is there some other talent here at work that we could all be part of? I'd like to know about that. No. Why one steward has two and one steward has five is, to me, a matter of trust. It's to do with their autobiography. The answer is given. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. I would conjecture, this is speculation, that the one with the five talents has been at this five times longer than the one with one. That's all. And three times, well, no, three invitations longer than the one with two. They both look forward to an increase commensurate with their trust, and how that's worked out, we don't know. He may have started one of them ahead of the other. But I conjecture that he started them both with one talent, that he starts all of them with one talent. You've been faithful over a little, If you're faithful over a little, I'll give you more. This seems to be a very clear principle in Scripture. So the one with two is just beginning, and there's no shame in that. There is shame, however, for the one with one who ends with none, a non-starter. Hence that cryptic remark that has also always bothered me, that God in his justice will take from the one who has actually none at the end, if you do the math, and give even that to the one who has more. Again, I think, is that just how you divide the lots with such inequality? No, 
Not if you interpret it this way. It's a matter of trust. We agonize a lot over our trust in God. And that has everything to do with it. But what this parable about is also God's trust in us, which is the end of what our trust in God is supposed to be all about. We don't always see it that way, by the way. It's a matter of trust and a matter of creativity. The creativity of God, to which we alluded at the beginning, entrusted to humanity, to human co-creators acting as such. I conjecture that these stewards didn't just go to the local branch of Edward Jones and ask to have their money put in a high-risk bond. It must have been high-risk to pay dividends back that quickly. I think their task was much more interesting and much more challenging. It required some creativity. Now, I should say right off that I think this is very much about the creative process. But what happens when, this is typical of how we see creativity, women and men transform lumps of clay and yards of canvas and sheets of paper into works of art, into masterpieces. They take lumps of what seems almost like nothing and see them invested with meaning and the power to transform. The element in this case, artists will often call inspiration. In my theology, inspiration is inspiration, period. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit to whomever, wherever, whenever that gift is given. What Matthew, however, is getting at is not about canvas and paper. He is getting at something more direct, flesh and blood, I suggest. What is being invested and with whom? Well, the answer is given, and it's not far away. Read on in Matthew beginning at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, this is judgment, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, receive the joy of your master from the foundation of the world. For, this is what's being invested, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, I'm going to stop a minute. If I go to Edward Jones, and I say, show me a portfolio. What's a sure thing? Don't give me just the usual blue chip stuff. What's a sure thing for my money? And he'll say, well, you can go to the uh, cancer ward and the hospitals, the patients there. Then we're going to go to the prison, maybe death row, catch some of those guys. Uh, Then we're just going to go to the people that seem to be perpetually destitute on the public rolls. We're going to take all your money. We're going to put it into them. Debt relaxing. That sounds very interesting. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Let me think about this, and I'm going to see if I can maybe change brokers. Jesus says... Then the righteous will answer, rubbing it in here, the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? They might have been thinking of investing in a church, maybe Willow Creek, it's doing pretty well. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, 
as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers. You did it to me, unquote. God's creative love at work, making something where there was nothing. God's creative love at work in the world, not looking for the signs of a sure thing, but looking for where God is at work, which means utterly invisibly working where the need is the greatest. Now, when God calls us, us, and he does call us, he calls us constantly, as he is doing in this parable, to follow him where he is at work in the midst of the lives of the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the strangers, the prisoners, those imprisoned in so many ways in the torments of their own addictions, the lost and the losers of this world. When God is calling any of us there, our response is not so often, let me at this fund, I'm going to sell my house and put everything into this. I think we find ourselves with the first, the third servant, the one with the one uh, uh, talent, frankly, I still do. Fear comes up too. Is this what you really want? And I think he's saying he's at us constantly. He's at us constantly. And the more perhaps we've gone where he's asked us, the more he is at us saying, no, right there. This is where I want you to stop. Invest yourself. Be creative. Do something. God is at work in the places of this world where the canvas is not just blank, but where the brush strokes have been violent indeed, where those first strokes have led us to anticipate what kind of painting is going on here. A thick impasto of pain, guilt, and despair laid on with a palette knife of iron. We recoil initially, and then something draws us on. And when we get there, And when we do get there, to give our time and our care at the bedside or the graveside or in the prison interview room, we discover, believe it or not, we discover a peace which the world cannot give. We discover the dividends are being paid back already. We don't have to wait for the end of time. We discover something coming back from God already that exhilarates us and gives us a joy that we, I don't know where you can find it anywhere else. We get a strength, we get a certainty, an openness, and a confidence which comes from our going in in utter vulnerability and trust saying, Lord, help me, I don't know what to do. A trust which then receives God's empowering presence, the Holy Spirit, to take up the work from there and work with us. If we go in there not knowing what we're to do, but expecting something to happen, God will get hold of us and give us words and give us actions and give us a heart for him, a sense of what to do, what scriptures to turn with, what prayers to pray that will leave us coming out and saying, I don't know what happened. But I've been closer to him than I have ever been. God will never let us down. 
At times we seem to be stepping into the outer darkness when we go to these places of rendezvous with our creative lover, God. But Paul writes so beautifully, you're not in darkness, brothers and sisters. You are not in darkness. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night. God's wrath notwithstanding, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do. Let's not get depressed, get discouraged, get cautious, begin to be concerned, to begin to try to hold on, hang on to whatever God has given us and ferret it away somewhere where it's going to be a sure thing. There is no glory in God with that. God is saying, let us not sleep, but let us keep awake and be sober. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on faith and love and the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. We are now destined to fall again under the curse. I'm not making light of God's wrath. But hear these words. Because if we are to be creative for God, the urgency of the task is huge. But we, when we go to that blank canvas where he is going to do something new through us, need also just an ounce of not just peace, not just trust, but expectation that lightning is going to strike right here. A little creativity, that's all. I am asking us all for a little creativity. For that same spirit that takes a few sheets of manuscript paper or a few yards of canvas and fashions from them something that can transform the heart and mind for the better. That's all. Of course there is doubt. Of course it takes courage. And the irony is the more times God works with us, the greater our doubts. It's the story of this church right now. Our history is this. When we've trusted God and said, please, we need this to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. It's bigger than us. We can't do it. He stepped in and things have happened. At seven years old, we are so close to becoming prisoners of seven years of success. Of trying to guarantee and hedge and guard. Yes, we need to be prudent and thank God for those who watch over us that we are. But what God is hammering on my cage is to say, Martin, there's still work to be done. You have an extraordinary, extraordinary assemblage of saints. What more do you want? What are you afraid of? Why do you hang on to what is familiar that you love? We're struggling with that still, and I ask your prayers. That means to me that God is something else around the corner, something significant for this community to do. And if our past is any sign, it's going to be very significant. Something at which we say, thank God, this needs to be done. Who is truly ready to do it? Because it's not us. And God is going to say, Yes, it is, with me. Be creative, wake up, trust, and live in hope. 
that something glorious is going to come to be. Pray for that, because we're here for nothing less than that. For nothing less than that. We're not here to be a holy huddle or a clubhouse. We're here to support each other for work. For God's creative work in the world. The word at work in the world. That is our motto. That's what hits you when you punch us up on the webpage. The word at work in the world. It's not about some little holy huddle of a church. It's about God's work at work in the world out there. And we get to be part of it. That's the vision that God has given to this church. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. You stare at those blank sheets of paper or that blank canvas. You look out on stage at the audience and you think, what now? What if I fail? Well, take courage and prayer and wait for inspiration to strike. Yes, there must be perspiration for inspiration. (laughs) There have to be good habits of study and care, attending to God's word. But the inspiration will strike. And then you go on. You step out or step up and begin the work. This is a tiny story. I sat on the floor of a modest apartment on College Avenue three or four Sundays or Saturdays or Wednesdays ago with a screwdriver in one hand and a wrench in another trying to refabricate a wonderful old child's crib that someone had donated to World Relief which is to be used to furnish an apartment which was being filled with all the beautiful things that you all had donated for some refugee family. I asked myself, why could they have not put the instructions in with this thing? (laughs) I asked myself, what am I doing here? Is this what a seminary degree gets you? (laughs) And the answer is yes. If you are so lucky, I don't believe in luck, if you are so blessed, if God has shown his favor to you, yes, indeed, this is exactly what a seminary degree gets you. By some miracle, I believe in miracles, that crib got to be assembled, there was nothing left over, and apparently nothing lacking. If you saw the faces of those who came to inhabit that space, to place their child who they had carried halfway across the world after five years in some refugee camp and put the child into that crib, now sturdy and strong. If you saw the pictures even, as I did, you knew why we get up each morning and saying we have an awesome God. You are not in darkness, brothers and sisters. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are asked to invest ourselves into this world on Christ's behalf and at Christ's command. Invest ourselves, throw ourselves into it, risk everything, not hedge our bets and not rest on our laurels if we have any. God will show us in, God will show us the way onward, and God will see us through. We have but to trust and then to be ready for action, ready to hear when he says go that he means go right then and right there because that's always the way it is with him. When he says go, he means now. And his command 
whispered to us is his love song for a broken and busted world that he wants to put back together better than it was on our watch. And we get to do that with him. (laughs) Amen.